Let's turn to our scripture reading today, which comes from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 5, verse 3. And the reason we're starting at the end of chapter 4 is this, because we rightly think of the Sermon on the Mount beginning in chapter 5, with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But when Matthew was writing his gospel, Matthew did not use chapters and verses. They started to become very popular around the 12th or 13th century. And of course, they became extremely popular with the invention of the print and Gutenberg's Bible and so on. And of course, they're helpful for us day to day today. But when Matthew was writing, he had no idea there was a chapter 4 or a chapter 5. And chapter 4 nicely sets up the geographical, structural, and theological emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's begin at chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. I live just off Pelham Road, off in the east end of town in a fairly small neighbourhood area. And I live in a cul-de-sac and across cul-de-sac from my house lives two wee girls. And I mentioned them to you before, Grey turned 10 over the summer, Kate turned 6. And it's one of the great joys of our lives when Grey and Kate come over for story time. And their mum and dad and I are pretty good friends. Ruth knows them well. And the girls will have supper, usually once a week, something like that. Well, they have supper more than once a week. But they have supper, but once a week, uh, they, of course, have their bath, put on their jammies and their onesies, and they come over for Ruth and I. Ruth, of course, fills them with sugar before sending them home. And they jump up onto the big chair with me. And we have story time together. And I get the wonderful opportunity to read to them. And, of course... Grey doesn't need to be taught to read now. She is reading chapter books remarkably well. And Kate likewise has sight words and it's helping them. But of course, it's a great fun uh, experience for me. And a couple of weeks back, it had been raining. I pulled into the driveway. Kate saw my car coming and she ran over to say hi because we're in that uh, stage with them where they love to tell us about their day and what they've been doing. And she came to see me. I took off the hat I'd been wearing, put it on Kate, and took a photograph. And here she is, just as cute as a button, with her pink 
earphones and when she comes to see us, and this has been pretty regular over these last couple of weeks during summer, we'll sit on the front step and wave at their mom and dad and Kate and Gray will tell us absolutely everything about the day. In fact, yesterday she was super keen to show me her pink sparkly shoes, which of course I liked. Because there's nothing about her I don't like. It doesn't matter what they're doing. We just love these little girls. And recently she said to me, we're sitting down, she was explaining her day, we got chatting, and she said to me, where is Miss Ruth? And I said, Ruth is in the garage looking after the bunnies. We have two pet bunnies, and it was supper time for them. And I said, she's, Ruth is in the garage looking after the bunnies, and she pulled herself up to the height of a six-year-old and said, with her arms on her hips in a very strong southern accent, Actually, typically we say garage. Who knew all my adult life I was fairly convinced it was called a garage, but now I understand it's a garage. And when you are corrected by a six-year-old, it adds a whole new dimension to your life. And this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 5, and we prayerfully read and move, I trust, to new depths of understanding about the Sermon on the Mount, what you typically were led to believe about the Sermon on the Mount may be challenged. You may come to a fresh and new understanding of what is arguably the most popular sermon in all of Scripture. But in fact, the Sermon on the Mount is not simply these first eight, what we call Beatitudes, blessed are. But in fact, it runs through chapter 5 and chapter 6, and it comes to an end at the end of chapter 7. Hence, we are looking at it during the latter part of August, or the second half of August at least, September, and through to October as well. So that's where we'll be immersing ourselves on Sunday mornings. And the other thing I would hopefully like to communicate at this stage is this. That each Sunday we'll take two or three verses almost like a jigsaw puzzle. Hold them up, examine the shape and size and colour and pattern and ask, how does this intersect and connect with my life? How is God speaking into my marriage? My prayer life? The raising of my children and my grandchildren? How does it speak into my career? How does it speak into my past? What is God teaching me about the future? And Sunday by Sunday, I trust and pray that as we look at these various parts, we'll see a picture beginning to emerge as God speaks to us, strengthens us, and encourages us as we spend this time in the Scriptures together. And so let's begin with a little of the context. That's why I mentioned earlier that the context for the Sermon on the Mount comes from the end of chapter 4. And you'll notice at the beginning of the passage we read, chapter 4, verse 23, and if you're looking at home, please follow with us, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And so Matthew is highlighting the region of Galilee, further north in Syria. And then in verse 25, he says, Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, 
and the region across the Jordan followed him. Let me take 30 seconds to explain why that's significant. It's helpful to understand the geography of the Holy Land as it was in the first century in Jesus' day. Now, if you look at the center of that map, you'll see the Sea of Galilee. On the bottom left-hand side, the southwest corner, is the town of Capernaum, where Jesus spent most of his adult ministry there with uh, Peter and the other disciples. Capernaum was their hometown. You can see the region called Galilee. If you go to, let's have a look, if you go southwest, you're going to see Samaria. If you go southeast, you're going to see Decapolis, which means ten cities. They were Gentile cities. They did not have a Jewish background or heritage. If you go back to the Sea of Galilee, northwest, you're going to see Galilee, the region. If you go further northwest, you're going to see, or further northeast, excuse me, you're going to see Ituria, and below that, the region of Tri- and if you go directly north from Trachonitis, top right-hand corner of the image, you're going to see Damascus, which was in ancient Syria. And of course, Damascus is still there today, as Syria is. So that gives you a sense of where all of this is taking place. And as we said earlier, much of Jesus' adult ministry was in and around this area. You have to go considerably further south to get to Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Nazareth and all of that. So that's approximately uh, what we're looking at in terms of the geographical context. Having said that, there is also a summary from Matthew, where he says uh, large crowds came from, and then he gives us the areas we've just noticed, we've just highlighted, but please notice large crowds. And so by the time Jesus is beginning to broaden out his ministry, there is gossip, rumor, speculation all over the region as to who he is, why he has come, how can he possibly perform these miracles? And people are coming in their hundreds upon hundreds. And as you get into chapter 5, he sits them down and begins to teach them. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for this reason. There is a structure to Matthew's gospel that we don't always grasp. And you see it At the end of chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you have your Bible, flick to the very end of chapter 7 and look at chapter 7, verse 28. And Matthew records, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Now pause right there. That summary section begins, when Jesus finished saying these things. And that's a phrase that Matthew uses on five occasions in his gospel. You see them in 7.28, then 11.1, when Jesus had finished these parables, 13.53, jumping back a little to 9.11, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and then 26.1, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And that is intentional by Matthew. When Matthew is laying out his gospel, he lays it out in five sections. And so you have an extended period of 
teaching from Jesus and then a summary at the end. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and we see it, first of all, right here in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7. And the other thing that's interesting in New Testament scholars tell us is that Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. Because we're told that Matthew talks more about Jewish history and heritage and customs, feast days, festivals at the temple than any of the other gospel writers. And they also suggest this, that as Matthew has five sections, Matthew is saying, even in the way he lays out his gospel, that Jesus has come to fulfill all that the Old Testament had taught. And so Matthew has approached his gospel by writing these five sections almost, well, almost identical to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so in writing his gospel, Matthew is saying to folks with a Jewish background, here is the fulfillment of God's law. Moses taught and looked forward. Jesus is the fulfillment and he is teaching also. So that will give you the geographical context. It will also give you the structural context of what's going on here. And as we look at that, there is one additional context that you need to get. And for that, we go back again to chapter 4. If you're at the end of chapter 8, flick back, and I'll try not to do this every week. We won't have an extended introduction every week, but it's helpful at the beginning. 4.17, and we didn't read this passage uh, in our scripture. We started at verse 23. And Matthew writes, from that time on, Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and that phrase the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god also runs throughout matthew's gospel and as we come to chapter five in essence what we're reading is this jesus is saying let me show you the values let me show you the distinct lifestyle choices of a Christian. In other words, living out your faith, what does it mean to live and be a member of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Those phrases are used synonymously. So he sets it all up, and of course we see it here in chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we see that theme running. Now, with all of that as an extended discourse, and please forgive me for that, let's look at the actual Sermon on the Mount itself. Now, chapter 5 begins. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, at first glance, you may be saying to yourself, Richard, What is Jesus talking about here? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because in the 21st century, we think, and rightly so, it is not a good thing to be poor economically. If you think back to your earlier days, perhaps when you were first married, you didn't have two cents to rub together. It was tough paying your rent or your mortgage. You wrestled with to pay utility bills. You had to be very careful. As you look back, that was not a blessed experience. So what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor? 
So he's not talking economically because he goes on to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that someone who wrestles with health issues are blessed? No. Does he mean someone wrestling with depression, poor self-image, low self-esteem, someone who is always grumbling and complaining and pessimistic about their life? As is Jesus saying, they are blessed? Well, of course not. What he's saying is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for this reason. Someone who is poor in spirit, a spiritual sense, is an individual for whom God has his hand on their life. And he's beginning to work in their life. And he's beginning to get them to examine their life, to look at their relationship with him, to look at how they interact with their neighbors and the two cute wee girls across the street, How do you interact with family members? What is your thinking process, your use of language, your behavior? And what he's doing is this. When God begins to work in a person's life and challenge their life and challenge them to examine that life closely, and they begin to understand that their relationship with him is not where it ought to be, When God begins to shape and fashion and refine you, heart and mind and soul, that can be a seriously uncomfortable experience because he's at work in your life. Now, you may be here for the first time this morning and saying, Richard, it's been years since I've been to church and perhaps you're watching online and you are saying... Richard, quite honestly, I've only been watching for a couple of weeks. I stumbled across your live stream service and to be honest, I'm not much of a Christian and I haven't been to church for such a long time. But over the last few months, God has been working in my life and I'm not quite sure what to make of it all. And why am I finding Bible study attractive and why am I wanting to know more about a relationship with Christ? Tease that out for me. Help me understand why such a relationship begins with poor in spirit. Help me grasp that and please speak in clear ways that we can understand and access. Help me grasp what's going on here. Well, let me suggest this. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, Jesus is teaching the parable of the prodigal son. And most of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. In my mind, he's probably in his early 20s, 22, 23, that kind of age range. His father has worked hard for many years to provide for both him and his brother. His father owns significant swaths of land and livestock for all intents and purposes. He's wealthy. And the son approaches his father and says, Father some point in the future, you're going to pass away. My brother and I will receive an inheritance. I wonder if you would be willing to give me my inheritance now, while I'm still young, so I can go and enjoy myself. I want to travel. I want to see other countries. I want to experience life and adventure. I don't want to live in a farm for the rest of my days. That's not my calling. But I want to make my way in the world. And Jesus goes on to say the father gave him his inheritance. He traveled to a far country 
And over subsequent months, his lifestyle became worse and worse and worse and worse. And he ended up following a downward spiral and it ended, quite honestly, in disaster. And as Jesus tells the parable, he ends up by saying that the young man lost everything he had and the only job he could get was on a farm feeding pigs. And I imagine that this young man was so desperate as he was feeding the slop to the pigs, he was tempted to eat some of it for himself because that's all he had. The future, his hopes, his dreams, his desires, his excitement, his adventure had come to a very abrupt end. He had spent all he had, and for all intents and purposes, there was no future. Then Jesus in the parable says this, When he came to his senses, he begins in his mind, the young man, to rehearse what he will say to his dad. And Jesus tells the parable and finishes and moves towards the end of it when he says, as I'm heading back home, the young man says and is rehearsing in his mind, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Make me one of your servants, a slave. And what is going on here is this. When this young man gets to the point of understanding that the poor choices, ill-informed decisions, the lifestyle behavior that he had ended up in disaster with no hope, nowhere to go, isolated from those who love him, at that point, he turned a corner when he said, I will go back to my father. Now, when he comes back to meet the dad, he doesn't say to him, Dad, I'm so sorry. I messed it up. Let me go back to college. Let me re-enroll. Let me take new classes. I promise I'll work on the farm during the day. I'll try night school at night. I will do summer school. I will do anything you want. Give me another chance. He doesn't say that. What he says is, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's the turning point. Why? Because here was a young man who was poor in spirit. He understood the magnitude of his sin. He understood that he had blown all that his father had worked so hard for. He discarded the values he had been brought up with. His lifestyle was shameful and awful. But nonetheless, he was ready for change. And he was ready for change in this sense. And I imagine, at least in my own mind, this young man, as he's traveling back to his father, would be praying and saying, Heavenly Father, I got it wrong. I messed up profoundly, deeply. I'm not even sure if there is an opportunity to begin again. Please forgive me. Because the gravitas and depravity and enormity of his sin had washed over him. And he didn't try to justify himself. He didn't promise to pull himself up with his own bootstraps. But he took his sin seriously. 
didn't seek to diminish it, didn't seek to excuse it, didn't seek to do anything other than recognize it for what it was. And he courageously resolved that he needed to change. And in so doing, he recognized that he was incapable of changing himself. That's a new beginning. That's the point where spiritually God often then intervenes, reveals himself to us, touches us heart and mind and soul, and gives us an indwelling power to change motivation, desire, behavior, to become a new person. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to take God seriously and say, I'm done with that kind of life. I'm over it. I never want to go back there. Father, help me, encourage me, strengthen me, show me what lies ahead. Enable me to live out my life as you had planned it for me. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. Because there is no hope anywhere else other than in the love and grace of Christ. And as Jesus goes on, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God welcomes us in. He shapes us and fashions us, heart and mind and soul, gives us a new beginning, enables us by His grace to live in His strength, not in our strength. That's what's going on here. And Jesus, in speaking to the crowd that morning, was taking them to a whole new level, one they hadn't appreciated before. And then He takes it even further. And He said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, what is going on here? Is Jesus describing the experience when a family member passes away and you are bereft and grieving over their death? That's certainly one way of seeing it. That's certainly a biblical principle that God gets alongside and comforts those who mourn. But it's not the primary meaning in this context. The primary meaning is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I would have to say in my own experience, and I suspect for some of you as well, that the points of growth in your Christian life usually follow a period when you've got it wrong. Certainly true for me. Those are the moments when I go back to him and say, Father, forgive me. I don't know what I was thinking. How could I have said that? How could I have hurt them like that? How could I behave in that way? Why didn't I see the sin coming? Father, forgive me. And I seek to make amends with those I've hurt. And when you move to the level of mourning over your sin, when it breaks your heart and fills you with shame, then, then repentance comes. Then you're able to begin again. Then as the love and grace of God begins to flow into your life all over again, you are renewed and refreshed and able to move forward. That's what's going on here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And paradoxically, strangely, 
whenever we take seriously our sin, whenever we refuse to dismiss it or minimize it or marginalize it, then God takes us to a whole new level in our relationship with him. That is a blessed experience. Painful, yes. Uncomfortable, absolutely. But it's also real. And it's very healthy for us. And that's what Jesus is speaking about. I suspect people came to hear him in their hundreds because of the miracles. But when he sits them down and they begin to hear the voice of God for the first time, he takes them to a whole new level. Fresh possibilities. A future opens up. They begin to realize that walking with him is the greatest experience of all. But it has to be taken seriously. Let me share with you an experience that I had recently, in fact. Ruth and I had been down in Charleston for a couple of days and we were driving home. If we were driving any length of time, we like to put an audio book on the CD player and we can listen to it. And we'd listen to the first couple of CDs on the way down and the way back. We're listening to the, the rest of them. Thoroughly enjoyable story. It involved a theft of a multi-million a dollar document that involved FBI surveillance. The characters developed as the plot developed. I was thoroughly enjoying it. As we were passing the time driving home, I thought, this is great. And then two of the main characters have an affair, prolonged affair. And the more I listened, Ruth and I looked at each other and said, we can't listen to this. We're done with it. It was beginning to get into our minds, beginning to get into our souls. And it was tawdry and cheap, distasteful. Oh, I wanted to find out the rest of the story and was the criminals apprehended and did they serve time? Absolutely. I still want to know, but I don't. Because it was not worth staining my soul to live with this stuff. And there was a turning point. What we watch on television, what we watch on our phone, the things we listen to, the things we look at on the internet, impacts the soul. And if you shouldn't be watching, turn it off. Walk away. There is no substitute for purity of heart and mind and soul and will. There is no substitute for understanding and grasping the enormity and immensity of the holiness of God as he calls you to that next level. And when you are there repenting for what you have done, finding it distasteful and ready to change, then blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. Now you may be watching this morning at home or here in the sanctuary, and you're saying, Richard, How does all of this speak into my life? Today, right now, the beginning of the service, you said we'll pick a verse here and there, look at the color and the pattern and the shape. How does it connect? Well, let me suggest this. 
We're living in the middle of a global pandemic. We're not sure what the future holds, although we are hopeful. Significant unemployment for millions across our nation. Many of us are fearful of what happens when our children go back to school and can we protect them enough? What are we exposing them to? And we are concerned, cautious, uncertain, fearful, I think, covers it. An economy that's struggling, been wounded and hurt. We're in the middle of a presidential election, only a few months away. Richard, how on earth does all of this speak into our context in the 21st century? I got all that you said in the context of Matthew, but how does it play into a 21st century context? Well, let me suggest this. There once was a man with two sons, and one of them ended up spending his days in a pigsty, fearful, uncertain, concerned, Deeply, profoundly moved. And God was right there in the pigsty with him. He's right there with us on Sunday mornings and on Monday mornings when we're ready to go to work and on Tuesday morning when we're thinking about our children going back to school. And he's right there with us when we're thinking about the economy. And COVID-19, he's right there, hasn't abandoned us, hasn't walked away. And when we are fearful and uncertain about what the future holds, he is right there with us. And when he's right there with us, we can say of ourselves, we are blessed because he's right there with us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because we have now finally, fully come to depend on him and him alone. So this week, begin a new thought pattern. This week, begin a new attitude. This week, when you're tempted to despair, when you're tempted to give in, when you're tempted to be fearful, please remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Enable us, please, to live in the light of its teaching. Enable us this week to live with the reality of what it means to be poor in spirit, but to live out our faith amidst uncircumcised, uncertain and difficult circumstance. Father, for those of us who are fearful, encourage us. For those of us concerned, walk alongside us. For those of us to think that these circumstances and challenge will never come to an end, wrap us in your arms of love and grace. Hold us fast that we would sense your presence and your enabling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.